This is Queer Diagnosis, the podcast increasing LGBTQ plus visibility in the medical field one guest at a time. I'm Zaria and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm Shrita and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Mitra Sidi, a first year medical student at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook. Hi Mitra, could you please introduce yourself with your preferred pronouns? Hi, yeah, my name is Mitra and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm excited to be here. So Mitra, how do you identify with the LGBTQ plus community? I really appreciate this question. So my identity kind of might not fit into the standard. I guess I might be part of the plus category, but uh, the short answer is I identify as a lesbian. I date women. I fall in love with women. I'm attracted to women, but I also identify as what I personally call kink flexible which means that uh, I am interested in BDSM. And within the BDSM context of dominance and submission, I can enjoy um, intimacy with someone of another gender or sex, even if the physical attraction isn't there. Just with the Google um, search, I didn't really find anything that came up as um, kink flexible. I got garden hoses from Home Depot. So I was just wondering, um, how did you, did you come up with this term yourself or uh, is it something that was introduced to you in another context? Yeah, I also have not heard this term anywhere. And I spent a lot of my 20s trying to understand my identity because there was no word for it. Because it was confusing, right? If I'm a lesbian, I'm attracted to women. Why is it that in a very specific niche BDSM context, I can enjoy a sexual experience with someone who's not a woman. And I've gotten a lot of questions through the years. Well, why don't you identify as bisexual? Well, I'm not bisexual. I'm a lesbian, right? Um, but I think in general, for people who are in the BDSM community, there is an understanding that when you have, when you're getting to those levels of, of intimacy, it's kind of going beyond the physical attraction and getting into the psychological experience of submitting to somebody or being dominated by somebody. And in that space, kind of often the body means less because you're, you're entering a, a psychological space. So I think after years of, of confusion, of trying to fit the type of what other people thought or other people would say, well, why don't you call yourself queer? And I was like, well, personally, I don't feel like I'm queer. I feel like I'm lesbian, but sometimes I can be in BDSM with a man, let's say. So I'm now at a point in my life at the ripe age of 31. It's actually my birthday today. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> where I'm, I'm proud to say that I can come on a radio show and just say, this is, this is me. And I think what also really helps get there is connecting with other people in the BDSM community, specifically lesbians in the BDSM community that I find actually share this experience sometimes. And I think when I finally found other women who were in this niche with me, it was a big relief. I was like, wow, there are other people that are lesbian, but sometimes have this experience. So the kink flexible, I'm trying to promote this term because I know that there's more people like me out there. Um, so hopefully somebody listening to this at some point will, a little light bulb will go off for them. That's pretty cool. Happy birthday. Thank you so much for Thank sharing you. that with us. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, so I don't know much about the BDSM community and is it, is that considered monogamous, polygamous? Is that, does it fall anywhere with those two categories, I guess? Yeah, great question. I, I love that we're talking about it because I think BDSM is just, it's still such a taboo topic and I don't really understand why. I just think it's, it's very heavily misunderstood. So I really appreciate the question. I think as far as I know and my experiences, there's really no relationship between BDSM and the form of relationship. Some people are monogamous and take on a BDSM lifestyle within their relationship. Some people are polyamorous and they're into BDSM. Some people are in a monogamous relationship, but will go to play parties or BDSM clubs on occasion together. You know, it, it really, there's as much variation as there would be in a non-BDSM situation. So could you talk about like how would like did you seek out that community or were you like introduced to it like how was your I guess how did you come across the community? Yeah so I actually for a long time did not interact with the community it was something that I kind of always liked myself and I, I got into with my partners and I developed over time 
And then a couple of years ago, I had a partner who was a lot more involved in the community. And I started to get kind of curious. And I realized that, wow, this is a really big part of who I am. And how nice would it be to talk to other people who have these preferences and have these interests and have these um, lifestyle tendencies. So it's really been more in the last year that I have been interacting more. And of course it's been COVID. So most of my interactions have been virtual. Um, but for instance, uh, just a couple of days ago, I went to a virtual meetup for women that are interested in um, BDSM on, on FetLife. And it was really great. We just got together and talked and, and shared things about our relationships and things we wanted to try and questions we had and groups that we were a part of. And, you know, it's I find that it's a really supportive community because speaking of inclusivity, you know, I think kink can cover a huge variety of things, right? I could say I'm interested in kink, but my kink is completely different from someone else's kink. But I found so far that the, the kink community really just accepts you the way you are and what your kink is and what you and your partner are about. And it's it's been a really great experience just being in a space where there's no shame around sex and no shame around having fantasies that you want to explore with with people you trust. I support that 100%, just so that you know, because I know that you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, actually, when I was in seventh grade, we were on a school bus, and I I had ever, I heard people throwing around the word kink, but I didn't know what that meant. I thought it meant problematic, so we were on the school bus, and the bus broke down, and I was sitting next to my teacher, because I had no friends in seventh grade, so I was like, <laughs> no oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's kinky. And the whole bus like shuts down and my teacher's like, what did you say? And I was like, that's kinky. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was problematic. But see, I think even right now I'm 20 and I don't think anybody really, I've heard about kinks, um, but I don't think I, just from Tumblr, but I don't really know like much about the community. So I won't, I won't lie. This is like my first exposure to anything and like an open conversation. And I appreciate you like introducing me to something that I've, I probably would have never heard of before because it's not something that's talked about, right? Yeah, yeah no, that's amazing. I'm, first of all, awesome that you're so open to it. And I'm, I just got even more excited about this interview um, because you're right, we really don't talk about it. And whatever is out there about kink is wrong. <laughs> so for instance, that book, Fifty Shades of Grey, that everybody went crazy over, that was a story of an abusive relationship. <laughs> that was not actually sex positive or consent based or actually intimate really in any way. And I know that me and a lot of other people in the BDSM community were very distraught and kind of disturbed that like the one exposure we've had to the general public is actually an abusive relationship. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of people like come in their mind when they think about it. But actually, in reality, in order to build a relationship like that, you need so much trust and so much communication. And you're constantly modifying what the terms are. And I like this, I don't like this, let's try this. Or we did this the other day, and let's do it a little bit differently. You know, and so I think unless you're really experiencing it or talking to people who are doing it, it's easy for it to get really misconstrued. Do you think that there are any I guess, accurate and healthy depictions of kink in social media that you know of? You know, I'm probably a terrible person to ask that question because I am not on social media. <laughs> but uh, I have browsed kink talk a little bit. And there are some things there. They have a lot of consent-based media coming out of there. And I've actually found some pretty good documentaries just if you search like BDSM documentaries where people will just talk very openly about their experiences and more the supportive aspects of the community than, than anything else. And you know, the interesting thing is I think at the end of the day, I might be biased here. I think everybody has a kink, right? Because we're just not a sex positive society. So we don't go around talking to our friends about what we fantasized about last night or, you know, what kind of things we think about trying one day, right? We kind of keep everything pretty, pretty PC. Um, I mean, I even have friends who don't like to use the word sex around me. I think when they spend time with me over the years, that changes. <laughs> but I think, you know, a kink really is, it could be literally anything, you know, anything that doesn't fit within this, like, very traditional concept of sex as we see growing up. And it's just kind of letting yourself tap into your more organic self to find, you know, what it is that 
makes you feel close to someone in an intimate space that maybe you were never taught was okay to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely important. And actually my roommate sophomore year, um, I used to go around telling people that we slept together because technically our beds were adjacent to each other. So <laughs> I was your roommate sophomore year. Why? I was like, who are you talking about? It's me. Okay. <laughs> Things just got interesting. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but I used to, because I mean, our beds were in, I mean, technically we were sleeping together in the same space. They never, you know, specified. But I think even just, uh, there's a, a dining hall that's right by us. And we tell, like, I used to be like, oh, she sleeps with me, but she doesn't buy my food. And so they thought that we were dating for a long time. And then I had to explain, <laughs> oh, we're just roommates. I just like to make that joke. Although there's nothing wrong with it if we are sleeping together, right, Shrita? Yeah, yeah, it's just that we weren't, and I, you know, wanted to make sure people knew that. But. <laughs> just after it's you sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's actually kind of sweet, because now, um, every time we see the cashier, who always, like, I made that joke to, she, um, we have a really personal connection. Every time we see her, she's like, oh, so are you going to buy her food today? And Yeah, and I look like the bad guy, and I'm like, this is not, I'm not beholden to this commitment. <laughs> um, but no. No, but I think the point that you made about, like, I guess, like, dispelling stigma, I guess, around, I mean, like, BDSM, but also sex in general is, like, really interesting because, like, I have certain friends who are, like, really open about it and, like, want to have conversations about it, and then I have other people who kind of can be very awkward around it. And, like, for me personally, I think because I grew up in, like, a South Asian home and it was, like, not, like, it was just super repressed all the time, I've just been more interested because I'm, like, it was because it was shunned as this taboo thing. I'm like, it's not that, like everyone does it. I mean, not everyone, but like a lot of people do it. So it's like, it is weird that um, it is so kind of stigmatized. But do you feel like, I guess with social media and just in recent years that BDSM or even the way that we talk about sex is becoming less stigmatized? Yeah, actually, I, I think you're onto something there. I, I do feel that things are changing slowly um, because bit by bit, I, I like to think anyway that the boxes that our mentalities are confined within are very slowly changing shape and finding new space. So whether that's the, the box of who can have sex with who, right? Or if it's the box of what clothes can what sexes wear? Or it's the box of can a sex change through someone's life? Or the box of, um, yeah, what kind of sex is someone having? You know, like all I think all of our all of our boxes are are hopefully starting to shift and maybe not becoming boxes. So I, I like to think that that as those things change, we can become a more sex positive society. You know, we have a long way to go, obviously. Um, but it's definitely good to look at the positives. And actually, uh, you were asking earlier about other kind of kink positive spaces. And I will say Reddit kink is excellent. <laughs> Reddit everything is kind of excellent. But but if anyone's like just curious and, you know, they've kind of been too scared to look into it, um, that's a very supportive community. And people will post about all kinds of things. You know, they're new to it or they're well seasoned in it or they have questions or it's, you know, it's a nice place to browse. And you also mentioned something called, uh, I think, kink talk. Can you speak to what that is? Yeah. So again, I'm probably not the best person to ask not actually having a, a TikTok account, but um, <laughs> I've had people send me things on TikTok that oh, are by... Kink talk. Yes, kink talk. It's, it's TikTok, oh. <laughs> but it's like, it's kind of nicknamed kink talk because they're TikTok videos about kink. <laughs> Zarya nor I are not on social media either. So oh like, my gosh, we're the blind leading blind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know we're all just like off the grid. Um, yeah, it's it's TikTok. Oh, that's wow! I feel so. I feel like I should have known that. Sure, no, you're fine. I'm sure you're not the you're the only one. And again, it's I don't think kink talk is like a word that people are using every day in their life. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about how I, I'm not involved in. Um, Actually, I don't keep up with the pop culture in general. So even with Fifty Shades of Grey, I won't lie, I've never seen it. But I remember in high school, it was, I mean, we're all, on, I, I think, I don't know what rating that movie has, but I don't think we were allowed to see it for whatever reason. Um, so I just remember it was a big thing where people who went to go see that movie were considered like, 
they were like, you know, the people who were like supposedly sleeping around with everyone. And it was a really messy topic. And I didn't understand why, because you watched that movie, I meant that like, it, it came with certain assumptions that I don't think were valid. But also, I remember some people were like, oh, that is actually the movie itself. It's like totally romantic and such. And, you know, I think the fact that it was portrayed as like a healthy thing, you know, unless somebody else told who is in the community and told you like, hey, this is not how it's supposed to be. I don't think us as like 16 and 17 year olds would have registered it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that brings up a point I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is that in general, we don't see healthy relationships depicted in our media all that often to begin with. Um, so we're just, we're desensitized to it. You know, we can't really identify it. And then when we look at our own relationships and people around us, I think we also can't identify it. Like we just don't have positive role models for relationships. Like recently, so through MSPA, one of the things we started doing is hosting rainbow movie nights as we call them, which are just oh. films about LGBTQIA plus people. And our first one was Brokeback Mountain because it's a classic. I was really looking forward to watching it. And it's not that I didn't like the movie, I totally did. But when people walk away from that movie, they're always like, oh my God, that story, their love, it was so sweet. But when you look at the characters, they're not in a healthy situation. One of them has a lot of anger. There's even a couple of scenes where he gets violent with his partner, like physically violent, let alone the emotional violence that takes place throughout the movie. And, and it's not to bash Brokeback Mountain. Again, beautiful film, but what scares me is the fact that people can't identify the unhealthy behaviors. Or even in that show, um, Black Mirror, there's a, an episode about two women, which again is a beautiful love story, but people always walk away from that episode with the same reaction. Oh, that was such a beautiful love story. But again, there's a scene where one of the women slaps the other one across the face and has very poor communication. And I would say has violent communication with her partner. And we're like, oh, no big deal, but they love each other. It's cute, you know? And I, I, I would like this, I would like to see this change. So I think, I think maybe the, the root of the problem I see with this issue with Fifty Shades of Grey, again, it's just that we don't have in mind what a positive relationship actually looks like. So you guys have rainbow nights, you said? Rainbow movie nights? Yes, we have rainbow movie nights. And I basically started this way back when because our class is virtual, like all other, most other schools. And we just didn't really know each other. And I was really excited to make LGBTQIA plus community where we were at. So I kind of just started a rainbow channel on our Discord and was delighted to see all the people that were joining it and sharing fun memes and just having a good time together connecting. And so we started this, this rainbow movie night as a way to try to build that community virtually. And what's your role on MSPA? I'm currently the president of MSPA. But I will say that we don't necessarily adhere to specific roles. I really feel like we're a team and we all just contribute when we can, where we can. So I don't necessarily identify with the label of <laughs> president of MSPA, just a part of the team. Could you talk about like, like some of the projects or uh, like initiatives, I guess, that you've worked on while you've been a part of MSPA? Yeah, it's been, it's been really nice, actually. So in addition to just community building through the, the channel that we have and the, the movie nights, we're currently working with some upper class men and class women and class, we need a new word for that to include everybody. If anyone has an idea, that would be great. And class other people, people sorry. Class people. Just class people for now. <laughs> Upper class people. Um, that's a good one. Who really initiated the project because they identified an issue with the endo repro curriculum in particular. I'm a first year, so I haven't gone through to that point yet. But based on what these other students told us, they felt like the curriculum really was not inclusive and sex was very much defined as penetrative sex between a cis hetero man and a cis hetero woman. And there was no discussion really of other people or other types of relationships or other types of bodies, or, you know, especially with endocrinology that applies a lot to the trans community. And there was no discussion brought of that. So 
we've been working with them to revamp that curriculum. And we all came up with slides that we thought would, would add to the presentations as they are. But actually the faculty that we've been working with were really excited by the prospect of having a more inclusive curriculum and encouraged us as a group to try to work with other deans at school to find a way to incorporate this curriculum, not just in endo repro, but all across the board, whether that's putting a little bit in every class or having like a whole week to dedicate to something like that, or a couple of sessions in other classes. So that's currently what we're working on. And I'm very, very, very excited about it. And I've been learning a lot along the way too, because for instance, if we're learning about endo and repro, why aren't we talking about intersex? Right, like why is that not standard curriculum? And I think I've been very surprised to find that in doing basic searches, it, it doesn't seem like, at least what our faculty told us, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of standard curriculum in medical education around these topics. So back to, um, I think someone asked a question earlier about are we becoming more sex positive? I was talking about the boxes and I think being in medical school now, seeing that there's a wiggle room to expand the shapes that we've been taking is really promising. So for the changes that you just mentioned, like you guys are trying to implement like more slides and more, I guess, discussion around like what intersex is. Um, do you think that these are changes that are going to be processed like on an immediate basis or these are like long term? They We propose this, but it's going to take like two or three years. What do you think? Yeah, good question. I think that we are going to see some immediate changes happening from this next cycle of endo repro. But the, the and it actually probably some some sessions and some of our other classes, but the overhaul might take a little bit more time, if that makes sense, which is cool because we're seeing something more immediate while also working for something more long-term. So I guess going off of what the curriculum should entail, could you talk about like what affirmative care means to you? Yeah, absolutely. So... I feel like affirmative care is one of those words that's thrown around a lot and everyone interprets it kind of differently. And I personally wish that we had specific intentional trainings around exploring this together as, as medical communities. Um, and I feel like what people generally think of is just having a supportive environment. But I think by definition, at least in my understanding and my hopes for affirmative care. It's not only just accepting people from different identities, it's honoring them and celebrating them. And I think it even goes beyond that to being willing to stand up for their rights, help them take care of ways that they might be vulnerable to discrimination, and really being willing to take a stand. So taking an allyship position, which I think is also a word that's thrown around a lot. And I actually think being an ally is much harder and takes a lot more work than people think, you know, because it really requires learning, being open, dealing with our own intrinsic biases, you know, not just saying, you know, well, I have gay friends, like I'm an ally. It's, it's not that simple. And actually I think all the time as a member of the LGBTQ community, um, who has the L <laughs> and then some in the plus, um, I find that right now I can be a really good ally for other lesbians and I can be a really good ally for people in the BDSM community, but I don't necessarily know all that much about being trans or being intersex or being asexual, right? And I think it's even our job within the LGBTQIA plus community to work hard to be allies to each other because I don't think we're even there yet. I don't think that I've thought of being an ally as, I thought of being an ally as like, you're either in the LGBTQ plus community or you're not. So I think it's interesting that you're making that distinction that even within the community, you can be an ally to somebody else. So I appreciate you opening my own Feel the vision there? That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that is that is the general impression. You're either in the community or you're not. But I think anyone in the community who wants to speak openly about it can admit that people in the community were not necessarily allies to each other all the time, right? Because you have to put in that work to get there, just like some 
and outside of the community. So, and I know plenty of people who don't identify as LGBTQIA+, but are amazing allies. So welcome. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think you also brought up a really interesting point where sometimes people will be like, oh, I have like a gay friend or even with like, when it comes to like, people will say I have like a black friend or whatever. And I think now that like allyship has become sort of a buzzword, there's people who are very like, they want to claim that they're an ally. But I think the point that you made about the importance of like listening to other people and like working for it is so important and that there isn't anything wrong in saying like I want to be an ally for this community and I want to put in the work rather than just claiming it before you've done any of that so I think that's yes great. I love the way you put that and I think if you want to be an ally to anybody the first step is is exactly that saying I want to be an ally but I'm not there right now I'm working toward that, you know, and not only that, but we're always working towards it. It's not something we ever just reach because it's something we have to keep working on and keep talking about and keep processing within. Um, Cause yeah, we all want to say, Hey, I'm an ally for this person or that person or this group or that group, because in our hearts, we feel that way. But to be, I think an actively supportive ally, you know, it, it takes some knowledge and we all have areas that we can grow in myself included. So zooming out, what improvements do you see being made in healthcare to like address the needs of, I mean, the LGBTQ plus community in particular, but it can also be broader than that? Yeah, I actually, I'm going to spend some good time thinking about this question after, after the interview. I think it's one of the cool things about interviews is you have your in the moment response, but they're kind of just planting seeds for things that come out later. So I almost feel like every interview should have a post interview, but I think that change can be made on a lot of different levels. And as we're seeing right now with all the other advocacy movements going on, a lot of it can very easily be performative, right? So for instance, with the Black Lives Matter movement, how do we really know if certain organizations that are putting out a statement actually care or if they want to get that stamp to say, okay, we're an ally, right? And I do worry about that in the medical community because it's easy to make certain changes like adding pronouns on a form, right? And, and that's an important change and it should be made. And I'm not downplaying that. I think that's an amazing first step. But I, I do wonder how we can make any kind of real transformation without changing the culture of the place. And there's, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to change culture there are so many ways to go about it. One could argue that it starts with these small changes and those small changes plant seeds and those seeds grow. Um, another argument could be made that instead of just doing these surface things, we need an overhaul. Why aren't we all doing trainings on what affirmative care is? Why aren't we doing routine staff meetings to read up on the literature and see what's coming out? You know, I think it it requires that organizations and individuals be actually committed to showing up and not just doing surface level changes, right? Because I'm I'm not convinced it makes that much of a difference in the long run. You know, if a trans person walks into the clinic and they have pronouns on their application, but then their healthcare provider doesn't understand what they're going through or isn't respectful, what's the point? Right. Or even if the healthcare provider is using the pronouns, but has these implicit biases that are coming out in their care, how much change are we really making? So I'm talking in a circle here. I'm basically saying the small changes are so important and I'm happy to see that they're being made, but I would really like things to go deeper. And I, if it was up to me, we would all be in, <laughs> in trainings, like on a weekly basis, you know, and I know it's hard to put in because we have so much going on already but I do think at the part of it everybody wants to be a good provider and a good person and somebody that's that can be an ally to groups that they care about and I wish we would do more to help people get there. I think that's important for me to hear too because I'm an EMT and I was um, Very cool. recently trying to figure out how to create a more inclusive environment um, because as of right now um, well a few things that have come up in previous episodes that I mean, every time a guest comes on, I'm like, okay, I write it down. This is how we're going to change it. So I think it's interesting that um, I was thinking of proposing, like, oh, why don't we have more pronoun uh, choices and just, like, open it up to short answer pretty much on our um, intake forms. 
Um, so I guess hearing you say that, like, from your end, that small change might not lead to a bigger change if there's not, like, a training that accompanies it. Um, that's, I, I'm trying to think about how, you know, it could be a good first step, but how can I go even beyond that and push for, you know, let's have, like, a, we have sexual harassment trainings every year. Um, I don't know how, I've heard people make jokes about them. I know that those aren't taken very seriously, but I wonder if we could also add, um, I guess, like, affirmative care for everyone type of trainings, but there has to be a way to make those be more important and have people take them more seriously, because even with the sexual harassment ones, they're just kind of like, yeah, we did this, move on, we're never going to talk about this again. So it needs to be more of a consistent effort, as you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you put that all together. Because, um, yeah, that's exactly my stance. You know, something small like changing pronouns is amazing and should totally be done. But on its own, I'm not sure that it goes the full nine yards, so to speak. Um, and, yeah, it would be amazing to see affirmative care trainings for for everything. <laughs> but I guess, you know, one, one step at a time is where we're at right now. Yeah. Also... As we were reading your LinkedIn, uh, we saw that you majored in, I want to say, music and philosophy. Uh, is that true? Yes, that is that is totally true. So I graduated college in 2012, and I got a double BA in my undergrad. One was in philosophy, one was in music. Um, piano performance, classical piano performance was my focus. And here I am, like, let's see, almost, I guess, like nine years later first year medical student, so you never know where life is going to take you. Yeah, I was going to say philosophy and music don't seem like things that the fun medical students do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you become pre-med? At what point did I become pre-med? So I spent my 20s doing a lot of different things. I think most people that know me, um, are either impressed by the fact that I've managed to kind of have so many careers in one life or just think I'm completely out of my mind and should slow down. <laughs> um, probably more the latter than the former. But what brought me to medicine, I think in essence was that I was very passionate. I am very passionate about advocacy. And so after college, I spent a lot of time in different advocacy fields. I think I was always interested in human rights, especially because my family comes from a background where they escaped Iran during the revolution and human rights was very much at the forefront of my understanding of the world, or maybe the lack of human rights, I should specify, was at the forefront of my understanding of the world. And so I've always seen everything through that lens. Through music, I was always trying to find ways to advocate through performing arts which I think is a very powerful way of advocating. Really long story short, I got a physical injury in college that prevented me from finishing a performance degree. Um, otherwise, maybe who knows in another world, I would have tried to, to use music as advocacy. But I took another route. So through philosophy, I really got into political philosophy. And from political philosophy, I got really interested in even more in human rights. And I tried everything, really. I mean, I, I had my hands in maybe like 10 different advocacy possibilities. And I learned so much, especially in the nonprofit field. And I met so many people who had a very genuine and authentic care in making impacts in their communities. But ultimately I was feeling frustrated a lot. I felt like I was running into a lot of dead ends. A lot of the organizations as amazing as they were, were really struggling to get funding. And funding is something as we all know, especially after the Trump era <laughs> comes and goes dramatically, depending on who the administration is. And I kind of wanted to try something different. And it never really occurred to me that medicine was something that I could use to advocate for human rights, especially because my family was very heavily rooted in medicine. And I tried to fight that influence a lot. And I never really looked, right? I mean, as an Iranian, like Iranians all want their kids to be doctors. And I think from a very young age, I was like, I'm an artist. I am not going to medical school. And here I am an artist in medical school years later. So I ended up going to a global health conference in 2000, oh my gosh, 2014. And I was blown away by the work that they were doing with human rights, especially because they were focused on certain development goals, specifically empowering women and girls. 
and women's empowerment and like sexual safety is something that's also been something I've worked a lot in through the years. And I just couldn't believe the kind of stuff they were doing. I never made the connection. I think I had a very narrow view of what a medical career looked like. And that really opened my eyes. And after that, I was like, okay, I want this path. I just didn't realize how hard it would be to get there. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. Cause I mean, even just, I knew that you were involved with human rights, you know, going through every single thing on your resume was just, <laughs> you know, it was insane. Um, and I think the one thing, one question that came to my mind is um, when I was a medical scribe, I met a doctor who he said, it kind of seems similar to you in a way. He was involved in a lot of uh, human rights organizations and he was a big activist and advocate. Um, and he said that, you know, now that he's 30 years into his career, he realized that medical school wasn't the thing that was going to help him make a big global impact in terms of, uh, you know, as a doctor, you get to, I, well, the way he phrased it, this is in my view, he said that he was able to help people with their life in that moment. Like he could give them the medication and like help them with their lifestyle change. But in the long run, that wasn't going to do anything for the community. So he regretted he essentially said he regretted becoming a doctor instead of an engineer because the problem that he was trying to solve in those countries was an engineering problem, not a doctor problem, not a medication problem. So what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I love this topic. Just like I spend a lot of time thinking about how to transform culture. I think a lot, probably too much about how to make impacts. I probably spend more time thinking about it than I actually make any impacts, <laughs> which I'd like to change at some point. But it reminds me of this podcast that I also think about so often. I wish I remembered what it was. I think it might've been on Hidden Brain on NPR, but the topic was basically how to make impact and how to live a meaningful life. And I put that in air quotes. And the argument was basically, would you make more of an impact, let's say being a doctor, working one-on-one -on -one with somebody, giving out medications, giving out care, or making a lot of money, going into the stock market and making millions and donating those millions to organizations that need the money. And I don't have the answer to this question, um, but I think that's what's cool about life is that there's many ways up the mountain to steal my new like favorite quote of 2021. There's many paths up the mountain. And as an engineer, you can make amazing impact. As a pianist, you can make amazing impact. As a teacher, you can make amazing impact. As a physician, you can make amazing impact. Really, I mean, I can't think of a field really, um, with the exception of fields that are based in, in hurting people or animals, let's put those aside, but really you can make an impact through anything. Um, an airline can make an impact if, if they decide to. So I think with medicine, the thing that appealed to me about it was, I feel like if you can be creative with it, you can play the micro field and the macro fields. Because yes, exactly, we are friend is describing is the micro impact. And I think I struggled for a long time to find a career that I felt like I personally could get to all sides of that spectrum on. Um, and you know, having an MD gives you a lot of privileges. You can um, you can work one-on-one -on -one in a clinic, you can get involved in health policy, you can do research, you can do global health work, you can be a professor, you can write books, like you know, and, and this is not specific to medicine. Again, this is in a lot of careers. Um, but I think for me, um, like the sheer variation and opportunity with the MD really, um, spoke to me, but you know, I've had those days, honestly, where I'm like, you know, if I had become an engineer, I could do so much more good. Or if I had become a lawyer, that's where it's at. If I become a lawyer, I can go sue, you know, big pharma and, um, the big oil guns. And, you know, I still, again, anyone, anyone who you talk to knows I'm a little crazy like that. Still in the back of my head, I'm like, maybe I'll do law school too. Like, and I'm like, I'm already 31. Let's try to, let's try to stick to one thing. But it's, it's a great question. And I, I'd, I'd love at some point to open the floor to the world to see you know, all amazing ways people have found that they can make impact. So I was, no, actually what you were saying, remind, we had a um, guest a few episodes ago and they learned Spanish for, for some reason. And then later on, they realized that like a lot of health documents weren't available in Spanish and that created like an accessibility issue for, because there's a lot of people here that speak Spanish and English isn't a national language. And they found a way, they're like, oh, this is a way I can apply this skill I have that could like make a positive impact. So I think what you said about 
there's so many professions that make a positive impact. And I feel like as long as people are looking for opportunities to do what they can with what they have, we'll probably like figure out a way. Um, so yeah. Agreed. And and I will say just to end that in in Mm -hmm. my case, I spent a lot of time kind of realizing that because my family is well-rooted in medicine, I also have help on this path. I I already have like that cultural capita and that social capita that might help me make an impact. Whereas if I went into another field, I wouldn't have that support. I would be starting kind of from scratch. So I think if I'm being honest, that also played a big role. Cause for a lot of people, I think going to medicine is for the science and I'm, I'm falling in love with science the more I learn about it, but it wasn't the science that got me in there. It was almost like a, a calculation for what I could do for human rights. <laughs> no, I actually, I mean, I'm a math and econ major, so not science, uh-huh. but I like growing up, like loved math and was also sort of good at it. So I got a lot of validation, but I was like, oh yeah, I'll do math. And I love it. But also at some point you're like, I'm not sure how this applies or what I can do with it. And I think that's where like economics really came in. Cause I was like, oh, there's a way to apply this that can like ultimately like help people. And, and so, yeah, I definitely relate to that. And I think most people are looking for, well, I hope that they're looking for some way to apply what they're doing. But yes, I love that you, that you mixed up econ and, and together and I mean again I you don't know how many times I've been learning about an issue I really care about and I'm like man if I knew the econ (laughs) behind this I should have done economics (laughs) yeah I know and I was like no it was because it was also like a long time coming I think because I was like because you always have it especially when you're a kid where you're like I want to change the world and stuff and then we grow up and people are like let's not do that like (laughs) because you know there's there's a safety in sort of doing what's known and stuff but I think ultimately most people come to a point in their lives where they're like, okay, like I want to do something. And you mentioned like, because of your parents like escaping Iran and and human rights or or the lack thereof was a part of the way in which you viewed the world. This is a discussion I think that came up with other people who have done the show, but is it ever like exhausting? Do you ever have to be like, okay, I need to walk away and like take care of myself before I can, you know, do all of this? Yeah, I I love that question. I definitely have moments like that. Um, It's interesting because I think I often run into people even close to me who are kind of surprised by how closely I follow things that are happening around the world. You know, how many stories I read. And I've been asked if I just stomach it well. And I, I do not stomach it well at all. I mean, I'll be sitting there reading an article about the Rohingya community and I'll just be bawling like by myself in a room right so it's I don't think I I don't think I stomach it better than anybody else but I guess the way I look at it whether or not I choose to engage it it's happening and I guess it's a thing you can go to or come back to but in my life I've kind of like crossed that threshold where I just know it's there and you know not acknowledging it doesn't necessarily like make it better if that makes sense. But I definitely, I definitely take breaks. (laughs) And I, I've been trying more and more to seek out projects that are actively combating issues in the world. That makes me feel a lot better. Like recently on days, for instance, about climate change is something I read a lot about and, and think about all of the time. And that's my other, other, other career is like, if I had started 10 years ago, I would have been a climate change activist, but I'm actually hoping to do that with medicine. <laughs> um, but I, I have days where instead of reading about climate change, I'll specifically read about what plans are underway you know, individuals that are coming up with solutions, engineers that are coming up with solutions, you know, and I'll kind of focus on that instead. Yeah, I think one thing I've been trying to work on this year is like embrace the fact that I'm like a sensitive human being because (laughs) no, I definitely, especially because I'm 20 now. So I was like 16 when like Trump got elected. And that was like my first like real introduction to politics, which was a terrible way to get into it. I'm so sorry for you. (laughs) I know. It's like, I was just like living in like my blissful little life. And then I was like, oh my God. And I remember when, because I was following the news really closely. And then when the border crisis, when they started separating, like when that started happening, I was like, 
I don't know how to do it. Like my brain stopped functioning because I was like, this is just so like unambiguously like evil. And I know that they had like audio recordings of like it happening. And I'm like, nope, can't listen to like, because I knew I would just like break down. But I think one, I read a book recently called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. It's really great. Mm. And um, she kind of talked about having similar experiences, but she made the point that like, most people who like change the world are like empaths like there's not a lot of like cold calculating human (laughs) beings who like like it's Mm a a painful but necessary part because ultimately that's what like motivates people to have a positive impact so I do think it's important and I do think I think we should like talk about it more where it's like it's okay to like read the news feel terrible about it but ultimately harness you know that anger or that sadness for something positive which is what you're doing so that's really cool yeah I think that's very insightful of you just to think about it that way of like harnessing the energy to to use it for something good it's almost like you know you can take time to wallow and do exactly what you need to do to feel the impact but it's like Mm -hmm. you can't really make the change if you don't feel yeah. right because if you're not feeling it there's no impetus but but good for you also I just wanted to say props for embracing your sensitivity because yeah I, that's a big accomplishment a year of therapy and she's like you know what we're gonna because I think a lot of times parents are like because I like cry a lot and my parents are like it's not that big of a deal and I'm like but it is and it's okay to um like know how big and important things are because you kind of have to to get anywhere so we've been um talking about your identity and being in the medical community um so i i'm not a med school or a pre-med person so (laughs) i'm do you have a lot of interactions with patients currently or is that later on no i i don't have any interactions with patients right now we do have standardized patients that we're learning the physical exam on and mm-hmm. history taking and things like that. I think some of my classmates might have a little bit more if they're shadowing or scribing mm-hmm. or doing other things, but yeah. we're not with patients just yet. Okay. So I guess, could you talk about a positive experience you had with like a colleague then in like disclosing your identity? Yeah. So is that specifically within the medical community or just in general? Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be because I know you've like worked other places. So I think any experience would be good. Yeah, well, I can I can probably share like two instances of that first so far within medical school without really meaning to I'm very out and I will say that I I grew up again with a Middle Eastern upbringing and I didn't grow up Muslim, but I did grow up with with Muslim culture Um, and I think in a lot of ways despite my openness on this show, I, I am a private person in, in a certain sense. People don't really pin me as being private, but but I am in some ways. So I wasn't necessarily expecting to be like out and loud to all our deans and all our faculty and everything, but it just, it just turned out that way because everything is virtual and we have online platforms to talk about issues. And then this, um, the opportunity to join MSPA came up and then this issue with the letter happened and I started interacting more directly with the deans and disclosing my identity. And so far it's been very positive. It's kind of been like a non-issue, like no one's really said anything about it or, or talked about it. And I guess that's, I don't know, it's a new experience for me because I've never been out in an institution before. This is my first time being so out at an institution, right? Because normally I wouldn't have the opportunity even to be out if I wanted to. I mean, you don't really take a loudspeaker and just like <laughs> tell everybody what your deal is. Um, so that's, it's been positive so far and that's felt really good. And a lot of classmates have been really supportive Um, But it it is a scary thing, right? And it continues to be a scary thing. And I think we also don't talk enough about how scary it can be to come out and, um, or be outed, quote unquote. And like, we kind of think, okay, gay marriage is allowed now and we're all equal now. So what's the big deal? But there's, it's very, 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 very hard. Um, And just a few years ago, I was teaching piano somewhere and my now ex-partner wanted to come to the piano recital to see my, my students play and see my colleagues' students play. And I wasn't out to my colleagues there and the director of the music program I had known for years and he didn't know. And I think to the non-queer eye, I don't necessarily strike people as, as being a lesbian, right? So 
um, I kind of, you know, people sometimes don't know. And I was super nervous about it. I didn't really know what to do. I, I reached out to one of the colleagues that I was more comfortable with. And I, I came out to her and I asked her, hey, is it okay? Do you think it's okay? Is the director going to be weird about it? Because it was also a very religious community. I was teaching piano in a church. Um, and I also didn't want to bring my partner into a space where she would be uncomfortable. Um, and it actually ended up being fine. You know, she, she was totally accepting and she said, Hey, you know what, you should tell the director and whatever. And I ended up not telling him, I just brought her and, um, there was no formal introduction. And actually for, I would say six to eight months afterward, he did not call me at all. We had no interaction and it's hard to say, okay, was this because I brought my girlfriend to the recital? But one can only assume if you have a relationship with somebody for several years, a working relationship, and that relationship goes quiet when you bring your same sex partner to an event, there was something going on. But several months later, he rolled around and called me and we never talked about it, but I think he processed whatever it was and we're still really tight. So while the first first one is maybe a more straightforward positive experience, I would say the second one was also a positive experience because I think it really showed me that even it's possible that somebody who isn't comfortable at first can can reach that level of comfort. So for the second experience where, um, well, have you ever explicitly talked about it with your director, even now? No, we never, we never talked about it. <laughs> Do you feel like that's maybe... Because you haven't, it, well, I guess this is how I try to think about it. Um, do you feel like it's like censoring a part of your identity to not explicitly talk about it with someone that you're close to? That's a great question. That's one of them I'm, I'm also going to be thinking about more after today. I think it could be looked at in so many different ways, depending on the perspective and the angle and the person. Because on the one hand, it does feel like censoring because I, I feel like I can't, or I, I feel like it would be problematic if I brought it up. Um, but then the fact that it even has to be a thing to be brought up feels like oppression, right? Like, why do I need to have a conversation with someone about who I love and the fact that we have the same, like, sex? Like, does that, you know, why, why do I need to be the one to bring that up if there's something wrong with it? Um, but at the same time, I feel like... Uh, how do I phrase it? You can kind of interpret it as it not being a bad thing not to bring it up because other people don't bring it up, right? So you could say, well, you know, if you were if you were straight and and cis, there'd be nothing to bring up. So why why would I bring it up? Um, so again, it just kind of depends on how you look at it. For me personally, I think um, I kind of accepted a long time ago that people aren't going to accept me everywhere I go because. Um, one, I'm, I'm a feminist. <laughs> Two, I'm a woman of color. Three, I'm very outspoken. Four, I'm a lesbian. And five, I'm kinky. So there's a lot of things that people could take issue with about me. Um, and so I kind of gave up on that a long time ago. Like I decided I could do this the hard way or the harder way. And ever since I kind of decided to just let people think what they want and if they want to approach me and ask me questions and learn and they're open. I am one of those people that's very open and without getting into an essay with this about it, um, it is unfortunate that it is the burden of marginalized groups to continue to educate other groups um, and in, in many ways reliving their traumas around it. And I don't think everybody should do it or needs to do it or that it's the responsibility of anyone to do it. But for me, um, I'm comfortable on most days, <laughs> on most days doing it. Uh, but that was probably more than you asked for. It is absolutely not. You do not have to qualify your statements on this. You're perfectly <laughs> valid in all that you say. Um, so we keep talking about how we're planting seeds in the questions that we're asking right now. And this is fueling your thought for later. But let's turn, down, turn back the clock a little bit and think about what would you say to your pre-med self? Yes, I particularly liked this question because uh, truth be told, I never really felt like I was pre-med. And even now that I'm in med school, I'm still kind of struggling to embrace this. We're talking a lot about identities today and being like a medical student is still an identity that I haven't fully embraced. 
in my head, I'm, I'm kind of a poser. I'm still non-trad. I'm an artist. I'm this, I'm that, like fill in the gap. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a med person. And, and I feel that way a lot going through a curriculum because for a lot of our classmates, it's their second or third or fourth pass at the material. And I have to like take out a dictionary and look up every word <laughs> of everything that we're doing. Um, so maybe in some ways I still feel like pre-med, maybe that's what I should really be saying. But if, if I could go back to that self, I would tell her to stay open. And I think I, I have stayed open, but it wasn't necessarily an intention that I set because I think it's so easy to walk into things with our preconceived ideas and it can be very challenging to have a beginner's mind to, to steal the mindfulness phrase. But I had a lot of preconceived ideas about what my journey through medicine would be, that it would be hard, that I would struggle academically, that I'm non-traditional, that I'm different from my classmates. And I think in a lot of ways, all four of those things are true, but there are other things that are true. You know, I could be good at this. I could grow into this. I have something to contribute. Um, you know, maybe there's a part of me that's actually like a really hardcore scientist at heart. And I just never really, never really found that part. Um, and I think because to such a large degree, we like to take heavy credit for the way that we are. And in a lot of ways we build ourselves, but in a lot of ways the world builds us. And, you know, who knows, like there's, let's say a fourth grade version of me that fell in love with the cardiovascular system of an octopus, right? And so the true story, right? And, and so, and I, and I just think as, as somebody who was so art focused, I got a very heavy message. Science is not for me. I'm not good at this. I'm like a different breed. And the one big takeaway I found about the intellectual experience of learning science is that science is art and art is science. They are not different things. I've, I see music everywhere and everything I'm learning and everything I'm learning in science is impacting the way I see and perceive and make art. So stay open. <laughs> I just want to say, um, I think you have beautiful language. Meaning, the way that you phrase things, it's so eloquently put, and it's hard to follow up after that, quite honestly. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to go back. We read a transcript for each episode, and I'm actually trying to create... I mean, I, I think even as myself as a pre-med student, I'm thinking, well, I have so many interests. Do I really want to jump into med school without exploring all these other things first? And the fact that you have done that is just like something that I think I want to take away and really think about, okay, I'm taking a gap year, but do I want to maybe take more gap years after that? How am I going to play on this? So um, thank you. This is going to be, this is going to be a great one to reflect on. <laughs> no, thank you for the compliment. You're making me blush. Um, well, it's actually, your birthday. You deserve it. <laughs> you. My main, my main, my main art is, is writing. Um, so I'm glad it comes out in my speech at times. Um, and it's actually been been fun playing with language as a yoga teacher, which I now am too, but I had this great moment. I taught a class this morning and I was like, I'm 31. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm living the dream. And then I was like, wait, I'm a medical student. When am I ever going to embrace this? But I, <laughs> I think it's great that you're thinking about how to, how to bring in your other passions and discover other passions. And I can't really say what it's like to go straight really without a gap year because I took so many gap years. But, um, so I encourage everybody to take time just because I think, time and also being amorphous really helps you tap into this this core self that is not attached to a label you know it's not I'm a medical student or I'm a yoga teacher or I'm in my 20s or I'm in my 30s or you know I have a life path I don't have a life path I and mean, you kind of have to ditch the life path for a second to see what's actually happening under there um so I I encourage everybody to take time off but I think there's probably ways to also continue to stir your passions as you're going through the education especially you because you're pre-med so you're not going to struggle with academics like I do <laughs> no I still will and I still am but that's okay we're working on it <laughs> so on that note I think it's a good place to end and uh thank you so much for coming out really and especially for on your birthday as well I mean I hope that we were uh, a gift to you in some way. <laughs> oh my gosh, this was a complete gift. I can't tell you when we scheduled it, I was thinking, should I schedule this on my birthday? And then I thought, what better day than my 31st birthday to have a conversation about the things that 
I feel about life. Um, so this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I, I don't know that I've actually ever been interviewed. So the format of answering questions and not asking you questions is a little strange because I have a million questions for both of you. So maybe off the air sometimes we can get together and I can pick your brain. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that sounds okay. awesome. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. You both give me so much to think about. Thank you to Mita for joining us. One thing that stood out in our conversation is um, when she was talking about pronouns. So for me, um, I've been working on like a presentation, uh, both because as you guys have probably uh, noticed, if you've been listening to the reflections throughout these past few episodes, I've been trying to um, create a culture where we ask each other for pronouns among colleagues at my workplace while also asking patients for their pronouns. So one thing that I think is especially important is um, like that culture shift. So Mita talked about how it's a good first step, but it's not going to be transformative. I think that was a really good realization for myself because I had, you know, I've been thinking about this for a few months and it seems like such a small change when I think about it as well. But the work that's going into it is so immense that it's hard for me to think of this as just small, right? But I know in the long term with the other things I want to do, not just in my workplace specifically, but just for towards affirmative care in medicine, I know that's definitely going to be like a small step, or at least I hope so, that everything else I do is so big. Um, but I do think small steps are really um, key to that. So one thing that I did last week that I actually didn't even get to tell you about, Shita, is that last week I went back to my... Um, my usual work shift, where it was a shift that I had originally trained on like a few months ago when I first started at this job. So that shift made me really uncomfortable because the crew would always throw around the word gay. And if you remember from the first episode, that was, um, I, it's something that's been bothering me for a long time. So I kind of left that crew altogether because it was really draining to, you know, be at work for 12 hours and have to, like, everyone kind of knew me as like this everyone would call me like this conservative, not conservative, progressive social justice warrior from New York. And to have to deal with that on every single, like on a weekly basis, it really was too much for me. So I ended up leaving that shift altogether. But last week I decided, you know what, let me take this shift on one more time just to see, has there been any change in like the seven or eight months that I haven't been there? And so I went back and things were doing pretty well. And then I realized I, well, here's the thing. I was having a conversation with somebody and they were telling a story about a female. And I noticed that just in general, like in this workplace or specifically this crew, they tend to use like the B word a lot with women. And I thought, you know, okay, maybe they do that with men too. I don't know, whatever. Most of the stories end up being about women because they objectify them throughout the course of the evening. But I was like, okay, let's see where this really gets bad. And out of nowhere, he's he's like, my coworker, he's saying all this stuff and he suddenly throws out, oh, and she's a lesbian. And the way he says it, it stands out like it's the worst possible thing a human could do. And I had no idea why he said it. So I was really uncomfortable, uncomfortable from that point on. And then a few hours later, I, I got to see him one on one. And I was like, you know what? After this shift, I'm not going to see you forever if I want to, because I'm going to switch my shift and everything will work out. So I took the time to talk to him and I was like, hey, you know, this is the culture. We have a very boys club culture on shift. And also, do you know that you talk about you randomly throw in people's sexual orientations? I've never once heard you say like, yeah, Bill, Bill is straight. Yeah, I've never heard you say that. So what is happening here? And he was really open to the conversation. He actually felt at first he did try defending it. Um, which I think is like anybody's initial reaction. But after an hour-long conversation, he finally, you know, he he was looking to address pretty much my concerns. And he was like, oh, that's not the culture that we're intending to create on, sh on shift. And also, that's probably why we don't have as many females as we like, you know. Because there is such a, I'm, like I should explain, I'm the only female sometimes on a 14-male crew. That is way too many that is that that ratio is not cool <laughs> so to speak <laughs> so I'm really proud of myself for taking the time to have that conversation because now I have support from a major team player in the organization and I think that it'll be a lot easier well maybe not easier to push the changes I'd like with um, getting the pronouns on forums but I am really happy that somebody else is on my team 
I love that story because I think it goes to show that when you have well-intentioned open communication, I think the other person is almost always receptive to it. And honestly, if they aren't, that's way more on them than it is on us. But kind of going back to that point of communication, at the top of this conversation, we talked about this identity called King Flexible. And you and I mentioned this during the interview, but before we had spoken to Mitra, neither of us had heard of this label, right? And we weren't able to find it online. And Mitra actually explained to us that after spending a lot of her 20s kind of exploring and trying to find a label that worked for her, she kind of came up with this term because she thought it was the best um, descriptor for how she felt. And I think that was a really important takeaway for me, that it's really important to listen to yourself, to um, take time to explore your identity. And also, we've had this come up in previous interviews that we've had, that ultimately our relationship with our identity is ever-changing and ever-evolving. And I don't even think that just... Um, describes, you know, her coming up with this term, I think it also talks about her journey into medicine. You know, she majored in music and philosophy, and she had years working with different human rights organizations. And then one day that she realized, hey, maybe the best way that I can affect change is through medicine. And so then she decided to obviously go to med school where she is now. And I, I think that's a really important reminder. It's really easy often to get stuck into boxes and think this is the path I have to take. This is maybe the safest one or what's expected of me. And I think as long as we listen to ourselves, ultimately we're going to, you know, end up where we're supposed to be. Yeah. So I definitely think that identity is going to shift over time, which is a little bit scary just because I think I'm so becoming, starting to become comfortable with the current identity. I have um, identities actually. And to think that that might shift uh, with due time is definitely something that's going to happen. Um, but something I'll probably be better prepared for <laughs> through these conversations. So on that note, thank you again to Mitra for joining us. And join us next time for um, our conversation with Sarah Islam. We're going to be discussing a lot of fun topics, kind of like how we did today. Have a nice day, y'all.